and welcome to the Narrow Road Podcast, a place to share the journey of walking with God on the narrow road that leads to life. I hope that you find rest and encouragement here, but above all, the awareness that you're not alone on the way. Hello, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Narrow Road Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Bowyer, and it's my pleasure to be back with you for another episode. Today we are getting into the meat of the book of Galatians. We're hitting chapter 4. We've gone through first uh, the chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Now we are on chapter 4. Paul has officially laid out his his argument against bringing any part of the religious rituals of Judaism into newfound faith in Christ. He has made his argument. He's taught about the law. He's taught what's good about the law, what's dangerous about the law, why it's not necessary, why we should avoid it, who he is relative to these Galatians that he's writing to that they might listen to him, kind of giving his resume and his background. He's talked about He's exposed the men that are responsible for bringing this in. He's made his petition to Peter, James, and John, the sort of leaders of the church of the day. And now we're at the point where he's he's going to go into the freedom that we have in Christ, the ultimate reality of this relationship with God that we have entered into that makes it so that we do not need the law. We don't need to bring any part of other religions and other philosophies into this fabulous relationship because we are in a relationship with God, not in a religious order or tradition. Um, we're not just in in something that, you know, affects our behavior. You know, we a relationship with God is a spiritual transformation. It is a complete renewing of the mind and the renewing of who you are as a person. It is to be born again. It is not to just modify one's behavior and check off boxes to prove you're a good person. And so that's what we get to get into now. We get to get into both his frustrations with the Galatians because he's genuinely perplexed by what's happening, but also his announcement of who they really are, who they really are and and what this relationship with Jesus entitles them to so that they can truly come to a deeper understanding of what that they what they've engaged in. They have engaged in coming home to their father. They haven't just prescribed to a new religious order. They're not in some fad. They're not in some momentary thing. They are in an eternal relationship with God, and it is not to be equated to any other religious institution that they may have witnessed or they may understand. It's so much higher than that. It's so much more than that. So let's not waste any time. There's quite a lot said in the first half of Galatians chapter 4, which we're going to try to cover the first half of this chapter. Um, so let's let's get into it. All right, of course, I'm reading out of Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 1 in the Amplified Bible. The last few sentences of chapter 3 is what he's going to be building off of where he went into the fact that, you know, we are all one in Christ. There's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but that we are all descendants. We are all heirs 
of the promise. We're descendants of Abraham and heirs of God's promise. So let's read what he says now in verse 1. Now, what I mean when I talk about children and their guardians is this. As long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, even though he is the future owner and master of all the estate. But he is under the authority of guardians and household administrators or managers until the date set by his father, when he will be of legal age. So also we... Whether we're Jews or Gentiles, when we were children or spiritually immature, we were kept like slaves under the elementary man-made religious or philosophical teachings of the world. But when, in God's plan, the proper time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the regulations of the law, so that he might redeem and liberate those who were under that law that we who believe might be adopted as sons, as God's children with all rights, as fully grown members of a family. And because you really are his sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then also an heir through the gracious act of God through Christ. But at that time, when you did not know the true God and were unacquainted with him, you Gentiles were slaves to those pagan things which by their very nature were not and could not be gods at all. Now, however, since you have come to know the truth, the true God through personal experience, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you're turning back again to the weak and worthless elemental principles of religions and philosophies to which you want to be enslaved all over again? For example, you observe particular days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored to the point of exhaustion over you in vain. Believers, I beg of you, become as I am, free from the bondage of Jewish ritualism and ordinances. For I have become as you are, a Gentile. You did me no wrong when I first came to you, so don't do it now. On the contrary, you know that it was because of a physical illness that I remained and preached the gospel to you the first time. And even though my physical condition was a trial to you, you did not regard it with contempt or scorn and reject me, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus himself. What then has become of that sense of blessing and the joy that you once had from your salvation and your relationship with Christ? For I testify of you that, if possible, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me to replace mine. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth now? These men, the Judaizers, eagerly seek to entrap you with honeyed words and attention to win you over to their philosophy, not honorably, For their purpose is not honorable or worthy of consideration. They want to isolate you from us who oppose them, so that you will seek them. Now it's always pleasant to be eagerly sought after, provided that it is for a good purpose. And not just when I'm with you, seeking you myself, but but beware, beware of the others doing it. My little children, for whom I am again in the pains of labor until Christ is completely and permanently formed within you, how I wish that I were with you now and could change my tone because I am perplexed in regard to you.
Oh, there's so much wonderful, wonderful meat here, but I love how he starts it out. He talks about who we were, who they were um, when they were children, right? He's saying spiritually immature. When when you didn't know God, you were slaves to man-made religious and, and philosophical teachers, teachings of the world. I think it's really interesting that he says we're anyone before we know God. We're slaves to man-made religious and philosophical teachings. It's so interesting when you think about how many people actually actively seek out um, philosophy in, in the sense of of giving them guidance and wisdom and he's considering to to live under those uh, to live under that wisdom is to be a slave but he says but in the proper time God sent his son born of a woman born under the regulations of the law so that he might redeem and liberate those who were under the law that we who believe might be adopted as sons as God's children with all rights, as fully grown members of a family. And because you are his sons, he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Because remember, Jesus was such a radical in how he spoke about God. He called him daddy. He called him a father. He talked about him in this very intimate language that no one had ever heard someone refer to the Lord as. And it says, now that Jesus has come, we know that we are sons of God because he sent his spirit of Jesus into our hearts that we might cry out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through the gracious act of God through Christ. We are heirs. We are sons. Doesn't matter if you're a girl. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Remember what did he just say in the last few the last chapter? There's neither male nor female. We're sons. And all that title is giving us is it is giving us the title of complete and total heir. Heir to the legacy. Heir to the promise. Heir to the fruit. Heir to the relationship. So don't get caught up on the fact that he doesn't say daughter there because it's it's essentially irrelevant. <laughs> We just have, we have everything that a king's child would be entitled to. And back in those days, a king's son would be the only one entitled to really anything. So we are entitled to everything the king's son would be entitled to. And that is awesome. And he goes on to say that... um but at that time, you did not know the true God, and you were unacquainted with him. So you were slave to pagan things. But now you have come to know the true God through your personal experience. Or rather, you've come to be known by God. And he's saying, this is profound what you've gotten to experience. How is it, though, that you're turning back again to the weak and worthless elemental principles of religions and philosophies to which you want to be enslaved all over again. And he calls out an example of how they're observing specific days, months, seasons, and years. And he's getting frustrated because he's like, what have I done? Like, have I, have I ministered to you for nothing? <laughs> Was it all for nothing that you're so quickly going back into these ritualistic expressions of religion. And then he, you can hear the frustration in him. He says, believers, I beg of you, become as I am. 
free from the bondage of Jewish ritualism and ordinances. And here's a man who knows what it is to be completely enslaved to religion, completely enslaved to the law, more so than they probably have ever imagined being, because they've been Gentiles. And he's like, please become like I am. I know what it is to be enslaved to that. Don't. I'm telling you, trust me, listen to me. You don't want this. (laughs) You don't want this. And then he's kind of pulling on their heartstrings and being like, hey, you know, like when I came to you guys the first time, even in like a weakened physical state, you took me in and you treated me as if I was God himself coming amongst you. You honored me. You listened to what I said. You, you, you found salvation. But now what you're, are you going to turn your back on me because I'm telling you something you don't want to hear? You loved me when I came and I preached the gospel to you. You had this profound encounter with the Lord and now you're you're acting kind of funky about it and I'm calling you out. Are you going to turn your back on me? He says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? And then he just like puts these men that are corrupting the gospel by bringing in this this the law to it. And he's like, these men, they are eagerly seeking you. And the Amplified Bible adds here, They are seeking to entrap you with honeyed words and attention to win you over to their philosophy, not honorably, for their purpose is not honorable or worthy of consideration. He says they want to isolate you from us who oppose them so that you will seek them and their wisdom. And he he even says, you know, like, I get it. It's nice to be sought after. I can understand. They're probably whining and dining you, you know. They're telling you everything you want to hear so that you'll start bringing in a little bit of what they believe. And perhaps these men are hoping to advance to being more respected than Peter, James, and John or more respected than Paul. And they know the only way to do that is to sort of hook people into their philosophy um, so that they can advance in the ranks. Who knows what their motivation is, but they're clearly seeking these people and they're telling them what they want to hear. They're giving them a lot of attention. And he's saying, don't fall for it. Beware, beware, beware. Mm. And then he says, how I wish that I were with you now and could change my tone because I am perplexed in regard to you. So he's not with them physically. He can't get to them at this period in his life. And you can just feel that desperation of like, gosh, no, you know, I want to stop this, but I feel so limited. And all I have are my words on this page, hoping that you're going to hear me and not continue down this path. So let's look now at what little tidbits we might pull from the commentary to strengthen our understanding of this particular um, passage of Galatians. I don't want to read it all because we'll be here all day. You know how long this commentary can sometimes be, but let's go all the way back to the very beginning where he gives the illustration of a child and a slave, right? He says, um, heir being a child, um, It says here that, so this is verse 1, he says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is a master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. The word child 
um, here has the idea of a minor. It doesn't suggest a specific age, rather someone who is not yet legally recognized as an adult. In both Jewish and Greek cultures, there were definite coming-of-age ceremonies where a boy stopped being a child and started being a man, with legal rights as an heir. In the Roman custom, there was no specific age when the son became a man. It happened when the father thought the boy was ready. When Paul used the phrase, until the time appointed by the father, he shows that he had the Roman coming-of-age custom more in mind than the Jewish custom. Hmm. It says, as long as he's a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. Think of a wealthy ancient household with a young boy who is destined to inherit all that his father has. When the boy is just a child, he actually has less day-to-day freedom and authority than a high-ranking slave in that household. Yet he is destined to inherit everything, and the slave isn't. Now comes the comparisons to our own spiritual condition. We are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and we are heirs according to the promise. The law was our guardian to watch over us when we were still children. The law's effect on our corrupt nature was to bring us into bondage under the elements of the world. Paul uses an interesting phrase here. To describe it, Paul uses the word stoikeia. A stoikeion was originally a line of things. For instance, it can mean a file of soldiers, but it came to mean the ABC and then any elementary knowledge. Cole translates the idea, so too, we, when we were young children, were kept in slavery to the ABCs of the universe. Meaning, how Paul said it was the elements under bondage under the elements of the world, the religious philosophies and so forth. But he's saying here another way to word it would be we were kept in slavery to the ABCs of the universe. The idea of the ABCs of the universe is important. If there is any ABC of the universe that we must break free from and that is stressed in pagan religion just as much as in Jewish law is the principle of cause and effect. One may call it karma, or you get what you deserve, or something else, yet it rules nature and the minds of men. We live under the idea that we get what we deserve. When we are good, we deserve to receive good. When we're bad, we deserve to receive bad. Paul told the Galatians to go beyond this ABC of the universe into an understanding of God's grace. Grace contradicts this idea because under grace God does not deal with us on the basis of what we deserve. Our good cannot justify us under grace. Our bad need not condemn us. God's blessing and favor is given on a principle completely apart from the ABCs of the universe. His blessing and favor is given for reasons that are completely in him and have nothing to do with us. The ABCs of the universe idea is not bad in itself. We do and must use it in life, and God has a proper place for it. But we must not base our relationship to God on this principle. Since we are now under grace, he does not deal with us on the principle of earning and deserving. Because this is such an elementary principle, it's so hard for us to shake this kind of thinking. But it is essential if we will walk in grace. When we live on the principle of earning and deserving before God, we live in bondage under the elements of the world. Hmm. 
So let's see, I'm looking now a little bit further, where we're going now down to verse 6, where he says, Because we are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. It is fitting for those who are in fact sons to have the Spirit of the Son in their hearts. This gives us both the right and the ability to cry out, Daddy, to our God, our Father even as Jesus did to his father. Some think that translating the idea of Abba as daddy is too intimate and even improper. Cole writes on Abba that while it was the usual informal word applied to a child implied by a child to its father within the home, it is over sentimental over sentimentalizing to translate it as daddy. But as Boyce points out, the early church fathers um, Theodore of Mopsuestia and Theodoret of Cyprus, who came from Antioch, where Aramaic was spoken, and who probably had Aramaic-speaking nurses in their childhood, unanimously testify that Abba was the address of a small child to his father. Abba is an Aramaic affectionate diminutive for father used in the intimacy of the family circle. It passed without change into the vocabulary of Greek-speaking Christians. We have access to the same intimacy with God the Father that God the Son, Jesus Christ, had. Jesus addressed God the Father as Daddy when he prayed, Abba, Father, as recorded in Mark 14. So, I don't care what nobody says, Daddy God is Daddy God, and I don't care if they think that's too intimate. It is how he is to me, and he will always be that to me. So they can just take their little weirdness out of here. We don't whisper Daddy as if we were hesitant to speak so affectionately. Instead, we cry it out. The scripture says, crying out, Abba Father. John Calvin said, um... I consider that this part participle is used to express great boldness. Uncertainty does not let us speak calmly, but keeps our mouths half shut, so that the half-broken words can hardly escape from a stammering tongue. Crying, on the, other, on the contrary, is a sign of certainty and unwavering confidence. Hmm. We know that we are the sons and daughters of God by the witness of the Holy Spirit within us. As Paul wrote in Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness within our spirit that we are children of God. We also can't miss the way the truth of the Trinity is woven into this text. God the Father sends God the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of God the Son, into our hearts to give us an assurance that we are the sons and daughters of God. Can we just take a minute and appreciate that it says the Spirit of God the Son, or the Son's Spirit? So we have the Spirit, and I think this is just like hitting me for the first time, that we carry the Spirit that Jesus carried. Like it just, I don't know, have you ever thought of that? Like, because we always kind of put Holy Spirit in his own sort of space right because they're triune they're they're their own individuals but it says the spirit of christ the spirit of the son is in us so the very same spirit that jesus walked with lived with and like i understand it was holy spirit but it's different when i just personalize it as his spirit the same spirit he walked in is in me i don't know i'm just saying so many songs that say that kind of stuff but it just feels different this time around 
because I see it as his spirit and not just like a separate spirit. I don't know. Because they always say they're, they're three in one, right? Like they're the, they're the same, but different. Uniquely themselves, but also the same. <laughs> but like, I don't know. It just, it feels even more intimate to know that essentially Jesus is in me through the spirit. Oh, I don't know. It just feels heavier than, I, than I've ever perceived it. Mm. maybe we'll get a bit more clarity here because it says the Holy Spirit can be called the Spirit of God the Spirit of Christ or linked to God the Father this is because the nature of God is consistent among the persons of the Trinity here the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of His Son because the idea of our sonship is based on Jesus' sonship our sonship is based on who we are in Jesus, yet there are important distinctions between our sonship and Jesus' sonship. He is the only begotten son, John three sixteen, making him a son by essential nature. We are adopted sons and daughters of God, made children by a legal decree of God. So then he goes... All right, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, you're an heir. So sons are never slaves, and slaves are never sons in their father's house. Jesus illustrated this in the parable of the prodigal son, where the son was determined to return to his father as a slave, but the father refused this and would only receive him as a son. And this is a beautiful progression when it says, but if you're a son, then you're an heir. First, we're set free from slavery. Then we're declared sons and adopted into God's family. Then, as sons, we're made heirs. Heirs inherit something. And Paul made it clear just what it is that we inherit. He said we inherit or we are an heir of God through Christ. We inherit God himself. For some, this might seem like a small inheritance, yet for those who are really in Christ and who really love God, to be an heir of God is the richest inheritance of all. In verse 8 through 11, he says, But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to these weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you lest I've labored in vain. The bondage is natural when we do not know God and when we serve those things that are not God's. Yet now the Galatians who have known God have placed themselves again under bondage. And this is what is amazing to Paul. In turning to legalism, the Galatians were not turning to a new error, but coming back to an old one, the idea of a works-based relationship with God. These elements of the world that they're settling for are weak and beggarly because they offer no strength. They're beggarly because they bestow no riches. All they do is bring them again into bondage. Paul's fear here was that this attraction to legalism would mean that his work among the, among the Galatians amounted to nothing and would end up being in vain. At the end of this section, Paul set a choice before the Galatians and before each of us. 
We can have a living, free relationship with God as a loving Father based on what Jesus did for us and who we are in Him, or we can try to please God by our best efforts of keeping the rules, living in bondage as slaves and not sons. Living that way makes the whole gospel in vain. He then continued in verse 12 and he says, I urge you or I beg you to become like me. For many of us today, these might sound like strange words from Paul. How could he ever urge the Galatians to become like him? Shouldn't he only point them to Jesus? In what way should the Galatians become like Paul? Paul knew well that he wasn't sinlessly perfect. He wasn't standing before the Galatians saying, look at how perfect I am. Don't worry about following Jesus, just follow me. No, he simply wanted them to follow him as he followed Jesus. Paul knew the Galatian Christians should imitate his consistency. The Galatians started out with the right understanding of the gospel because Paul led them into the right understanding. But some of them didn't stay there like Paul did, and in that way they should become like Paul. He knew the Galatian Christians should imitate his liberty. Paul was free in Jesus, and he wanted them to know the same freedom. Like I said, remember, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knows what it's like to be strapped to the law. And now, being who he is, he knows what it's like to be free. And he can say unequivocally, this is the better way. In some sense, every Christian should be able to say to others, become like me. All Christians should be able to say something like this, especially to unbelievers, namely that we are so satisfied with Jesus Christ, with his freedom, joy, and salvation, that we want other people to become like us. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Then he goes into that portion there in the last few verses where he's like, you know, I came to you at the first time with my physical problems and you didn't despise me, you didn't reject me, you received me as if I was God himself. And what was the blessing that you enjoyed? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I become your enemy now because I tell you the truth? Apparently, Paul was compelled to travel into the region of Galatia because of some type of physical infirmity he suffered while on his first missionary journey. The book of Acts doesn't tell us much about this as we would like to know, but we can piece together a few facts to kind of understand a little bit what he's saying here. We know that when Paul was in the region of South Galatia, persecutors tried to execute him by stoning him in the city of Lystra. His attackers gave him up for dead, yet he miraculously survived. Some think that this was the cause of the physical infirmity that he mentions. But Paul was already in the region of Galatia when that happened. His wording in Galatians 4 here suggests that he came into the region because of a physical infirmity. The emphatic position of the phrase suggests that Paul's original plan had been to go elsewhere, perhaps westward towards Ephesus, and that his missionary visit to the Galatians was due solely to his illness and his need for recuperation. What exactly was Paul's physical infirmity? Some believe his problem was depression, or epilepsy, or that his illness was connected with the thorn in his flesh that he mentions in 2 Corinthians 12, but none of these can be established with certainty. According to Acts chapter 13, Paul came to the region of Galatia, specifically the city of Pisidian Antioch, from the city of Perga in the region of Pamphylia. We know a few things about Perga. First, it was the place where John Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas, according to Acts chapter 13. And the trials related to the physical infirmity may have had something to do with it. Second, Perga was, in low, was a lowland, marshy area. 
the Galatian city of Pisidian Antioch was some 3,600 feet higher than Perga. It has been suggested that Paul's physical infirmity was a type of malaria common to the lowlands of Perga. William Barclay described this malaria as producing a terrible pain that was like a red-hot bar thrust through the forehead. Yikes. However, we should remember that Morris quoted from Stam that the difficulty of diagnosing the case of a living patient should warn us of the futility of attempting it for one who has been dead almost 1,900 years. Hmm, very fair. Even though Paul was not a great example of strength and power because of his physical infirmity, the Galatians still received him, and they received him honorably. They embraced Paul so generously that he said they would have plucked out their own eyes and given them to him if he somehow needed that. <laughs> so, in light of this great love and honor the Galatians had shown Paul, and in light of the great blessing they received from God when they showed such honor to him, the Galatians should not think that Paul has now become their adversary when he confronted them with the truth. They needed the truth more than they needed to feel good about where they were at. Calvin here says, it's not enough that pastors be respected if they are not also loved. Both are necessary, otherwise their teaching will not have a sweet taste. And he declares that both had been true of him among the Galatians. He had already spoken of their respect, and now he speaks to their love. To the degree that ministers and teachers of the word of God do teach the word, to that same degree should they be received as the Galatians received the Apostle Paul. Ministers should not be received and evaluated on the basis of their personal appearance, intellectual attainments, or winsome manner but as to whether or not they are indeed God's messengers bearing the word of Christ. Then he calls out how these Judaizers are courting them, right? Speaking to them with honeyed words, giving them all this attention. Paul will admit that the legalists zealously court the Galatians and legalism often comes wrapped in a cloak of love, but the end result is for no good. Many cults use a technique informally known as love bombing. They overwhelm a prospective member with attention, support, and affection. Yet it isn't really a sincere love for the prospect. It's really just a technique to gain another member. Christians can use the same technique in some way or another. Paul's legalistic opponents wanted to draw the Galatian Christians away into their own divisive group. They actually wanted to exclude the Galatians from other Christians and to bring them into this super spiritual group of legalists. <laughs> Paul certainly wasn't against zeal, but he wanted Christians to be zealous in a good thing. But it's important to make sure that our zeal is in a good thing because zeal in a bad thing can be very dangerous. Then he finally ends with uh, verse 19 through 20 where he says, My little children from whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you or I'm really worried about what's going on. But he calls them his little children. He, Paul, Paul rightly considers himself to be a father to the Galatians. Yet this challenge has made him feel as if he must bring them to Jesus all over again. Paul knew that his work of forming Christ in them was not complete until they stayed in a place of trusting Jesus. 
The idea of until Christ is formed in you is similar to the idea of Romans 8, where he says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. It would be wrong for Paul to seek for himself form. Wait, it would be wrong for Paul to seek to form himself in the Galatians. That is never to be the job of the pastor. He was right to seek to form Christ in them. Through this section of writing, Paul masterfully mixed metaphors to give a powerful picture. Paul likens himself to a mother who gave spiritual birth to the Galatians, but he also refers to himself in a way as a father by calling them his children. Sometimes unnatural has something unnatural has happened. The Galatians are drifting away from Jesus and to the law, so Paul has to labor in birth again, and this is unnatural to have labor pains a second time. Paul has the labor pains, but Christ is formed in them. Paul will keep laboring until it is Christmas for the Galatians, and Jesus is formed in them. This is a pattern found in all biblical ministry. The word of God falling from the lips of the apostle or minister enters into the heart of the hearer. The Holy Ghost impregnates the word so that it brings forth the fruit of faith. In this manner, every Christian pastor is a spiritual father for whom, for father who forms Christ in the heart of his hearers. Sorry about that, guys. I'm having trouble reading today. <laughs> but finally, it says that Paul wished two things. First, that he could be present with these Galatians, but he also wished that he did not need to speak to them in such strong words. He wanted to change his tone. Yet their danger of leaving the true gospel has made such strong words necessary and has made Paul's doubts necessary to address. This section in Galatians chapter 4 shows us principles for the attitude for people in the church toward their pastor. Their attitude must not be determined by his personal appearance or personality. It's one thing we can take away. Their attitude must not be determined by their own theological whims. Their attitude should be determined by his loyalty to the apostolic message in the Bible. This, show, this section also shows us principles for the attitude for the pastor towards the people in his church. He must be willing to serve and sacrifice for his people. He must tell them the truth. He must love people deeply, never for a selfish motive. He must desire to see more than mere excitement, but zeal for good things. And he must desire to form Jesus in them, not himself in them. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, so that is where we're at, and we will keep going tomorrow. We're learning more and more and more and more and more about this drama that's unfolding, but also the 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 beauty of what we've been given in Christ that makes bringing anything else from any philosophy or any religion into it just seem absolutely repulsive. That's what he's trying to do here, and I hope that's what we are taking away. And the ultimate goal with the book of Galatians is to help us see how full, how complete the gospel of faith and salvation through Jesus Christ is that we never, ever, ever at any point in our life, no matter how seductive it may seem, we never need to add an ounce to it. We don't have to bring anything else from the world or other religions or other people we even respect. We don't have to bring anything else into it because Jesus, Holy Spirit, and Father God are real big boys who know exactly how to save a soul. And they've done it so well for thousands of years and will continue to do it forever that we don't need to add anything else to it that men have created. 
And I hope that it empowers us to walk in our sonship as sons and heirs of God. Because, man, those verses, I don't want to pass over them. And, I, and we're going to keep hitting them throughout the next few days of study. But it, this is anthemic. This book is anthemic to our identity as sons. What that actually means. If you can really sit with who you are as a son. It is some of the most transformative information and truth. And it is like a love song to the heart. It's so empowering. So, with that, we will continue deep diving into our freedom in the book of Galatians tomorrow. So, check back then. Until then, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Narrow Road Podcast. And we will be back with another episode promptly tomorrow as we continue 365 days of podcasting. Thank you so much and bye-bye.